Well, this is the final lesson uh, in our study of Presbyterianism, Lesson 12. And uh, for, for the first seven or eight classes, I was very loosely working out of uh, this book, Recovering Mother Kirk. But since then, I've been, since I think Lesson 8 or 9, I've, we've been looking closely at the arguments of the book. Um, and... We are going to look this time at two chapters, so not finishing. We got through chapter 9 last time. Uh, this time looking at chapters 10 and 13. Confessional Presbyterianism and the lim- Limits of Protestant Ecumenism. Ecumenism is the effort to be friendly with other traditions. And then the irony of American Presbyterian worship. But there are other chapters that I, I haven't covered and I haven't even read. So uh, this has not been comprehensive, far from it. Uh, But why don't we dive in now, uh, looking at chapter 10, namely, uh, again, confessional Presbyterianism and the limits of Protestant ecumenism. One of the things uh, that Daryl points out, and I, I remember a professor saying once, in seminary that really stuck with me, and, and you may remember me saying this as well, is that uh, there is a difference between a confessional Presbyterian and an evangelical. Uh, now here I am self-consciously uh, differing from one of my heroes, Martin Lloyd-Jones. He, he liked the title. I don't know if he would today, let's be fair. He was making these arguments in the 50s and 60s, but he was in favor of the title evangelical, And he believed in evangelical unions. But there is a reason that confessional Presbyterians have not joined with these broader evangelical movements. And the reason is because we don't view ourselves as evangelicals. Um, Or at the very least, we would have to say we are confessional evangelicals, which immediately places us outside of that that movement. Uh, so this is something that Daryl is describing, and this is something that goes back to Machen and his concerns as he was instrumental in forming um, a, a, a movement in Presbyterianism that is still alive today, namely the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and Westminster Seminary. One of the things that I'm going to be arguing for is that the difference between the two the evangelical, and so we're not looking at the liberal and the Protestant. This is something Darryl keep, a point Daryl keeps making. That is too simplistic of a dichotomy. But we also have to look at the evangelical and the confessional Presbyterian and understand that, in many ways, Machen was as, op- as opposed to them. What were those people called in Machen's day, by the way? There was another word for evangelicals back then. Somebody has to tell me. I, I'm not going to let this stand. <laughs> Try. That's it. Fundamentalist. Machen was not a fundamentalist. He was, again, he was a confessional Presbyterian. This is crucial to understanding the OPC's identity. It's also crucial to understanding why it lacks a broader appeal. But, but that is on purpose. What, what I'm going to be arguing is that instead of seeking the broader appeal of, uh, I've, I've recently heard it called Big Eva, <laughs> Uh, so, uh, and Big Eva, well, it has everything that every big institution has, uh, but we'll save that for another, another Bible study or another uh, Sunday school, but it's seeking to preserve a tradition. 
And that really is what we've been contending for all along. That Presbyterians like the Eastern Orthodox and the Catholics and, and, the, uh, and the Anglicans, we have a tradition that we're preserving and holding on to, and it goes back to Calvin. It's, it's five centuries old, I think. Um, or is it four centuries old? At, at any rate, it's, it's a long history that we're holding on to. We're not reinventing the wheel. We, we have a long-standing tradition that we are holding on to and that we're offering to the world. It is, it is thoroughly, as I argued last time, a countercultural movement, which is, is pervasive. It, it's a different outlook on life than you find in the modern world with its modern values. So this goes back to the earliest days of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. The, the big Eva was, uh, was around then. And there were organizations that were being formed, uh, one of which was uh, the Na- National Association of Evangelicals, I believe that's still around, as well as the ACC. Now, what was the ACC? I don't remember. ACCC, American Council of Christian Churches. So as the fundamentalists were breaking off from the mainline liberal churches, they were not only forming their own communions, but they were also trying to work together in a spirit of ecumenicism. The OPC rejected this. It did not desire a place in the NAE or the ACCC, and this remains largely true to this day, which reveals again, as as I've been saying, a third category in American Protestantism, not liberal and and, uh, conservative or mainline and break off, uh, liberal fundamentalist, but also confessional, which is more in the middle. The confessional church, this is the irony of Presbyterianism, as I'll argue in, the, in chapter 13, or as Daryl argues, that the, the confessionalists actually have some things in common with the mainline liberals. Uh, and, and, it, and, uh, and, and ironically, that's worship. Uh, our worship doesn't look like an evangelical worship service. It looks like, go to a PCUSA church today. It looks a lot more like that. Uh, but our theology, obviously, and our rejection of, of modernism, I, I shouldn't even say that, that fundamentalists accept modernism. That's part of the problem here. But our rejection of the liberal ideas about the Bible, we've thoroughly rejected that. So it's a third category, and that's where we, we have ended up today. It is culturally irrelevant, but again, that's by design. So maybe we'll never be big, and maybe we never want to be. And there's all sorts of problems with that. Look at the PCA today. And ask yourself, how did she get there? How did the PCA so quickly end up becoming a denomination with gay ministers in the pulpit? Uh, I mean, it didn't take any time at all. And I'm not exaggerating. That's actually what they have. <laughs> and I think 40% of the ministers came out in support of that when they had this, this, uh, uh, this document that, that was several years ago. I forget what it was called. On, but on, on sexuality. And that the conservatives said, we won. Yeah, you won 60-40. <laughs> I mean, imagine that. Uh, so, so, no, they didn't win. The battle's already lost. A lot of men are realizing that, by the way, and they're leaving. Well, maybe there are benefits to not being this grand, culturally relevant institution. Uh, maybe you can just avoid some of these things altogether. We don't have a homosexual controversy in the OPC right now. There, there might be good reasons for that. All right, well, so we are culturally obscure. Uh, and the OPC always has been. It has self-consciously not sought a place at the bigger table. And so 
In order to understand the Orthodox Presbyterian Church's place in 20th century Protestantism, one must understand not only what it opposed in common with the fundamentalist, namely, uh, it, it was opposing liberal views of, of Scripture, but also what it was contending for positively. If you say they were opposed to liberalism, then you would think of them as fundamentalists, and a lot of people do to this day. They think of Machen as a fundamentalist. But they miss what Machen was contending for in the church, the positive program he was building. When you realize that, then you see that it's not appropriate to call Machen or the Orthodox Presbyterian Church a fundamentalist. And so in order to understand this, one needs to understand Machen himself and also confessional Presbyterianism or confessional Protestantism more broadly. This third category is bigger than Presbyterians. There are other confessional Protestant communions that have also not sought a place with these broader uh, movements whose concerns about maintaining a distinct ecclesial and confessional identity in the midst of modern uncertainty made them uneasy about these broader evangelical movements. In other words, like ourselves, they were concerned to preserve a tradition. Now, give me an example, someone, of that. See if you could think of it, Matt. Oh, well, I'm cheating because I... Yep. Uh, Lutherans. Lutherans. That, I was hoping someone would say that, but, it, but again, I, it's not quite as satisfying if you already read the book. But the answer is the Lutherans uh, were, were doing something similar. And if you've ever been to a Missouri Synod Lutheran or Wisconsin, Wisconsin Synod, which I've, I have several times, in fact, um, it, it, you get the sense. These are people who are out of place in modern times. They have not, they, they're, again, preserving a tradition. And I think more and more what we are seeing is that people are being drawn to that. I think that's one of the points I've been making is that we're losing people to Anglicanism. We're losing people to Roman Catholicism. And why is that? It's because people are drawn to the grandeur of the tradition. Uh, and, and they're growing tired with the, uh, the flatness. That's not a good word, but the, the lack of depth. The shallowness, that's the word, of all things modern. Modern culture, modern church, so on. And so when you study Machen, I said we have to understand Machen. You have to understand that he was at odds both, as I said, he was in the middle. Doesn't make him a centrist, okay? That's just the paradigm I'm working with. Machen was exceedingly conservative by all standards. But he was, he was in between these two movements, uh, he was opposed to the, the goals and the program of the liberals, but he was also at, opposed to the fundamentalists in, in important ways. And understanding this is important to understanding the place of confessional Presbyterians today. Both parties, you have to understand, the liberals and uh, the fundamentalists were seeking to transform and to evangelize the culture after their own image. And I think if you look at both movements, you would have to admit that both, to a large degree, have succeeded. Uh, the liberals have made tremendous inroads, but so too have uh, the evangelicals, and the, the, who are the modern fundamentalists. But the problem which Machen pointed out, and this goes back to an earlier lesson, and to some extent the last lesson, is that in Machen's view that both of them were confusing the place of the church in society. While Machen was primarily concerned to safeguard the distinction between the church and society. What, what is the, the phrase for that? We looked at it earlier. The spirituality of the church. That's what he was contending for. And that's what earlier American Presbyterians were contending for as well. 
uh, men like Dabney and Thornwell, but also men like Charles Hodge on the northern side. And so you can't just say, well, it was proponents of slavery. That's not true. You can, you can find a man like Hodge as well. And we, we saw that when we looked at that lesson. And so when Machen, unlike the fundamentalists, was opposing the liberals, the theological liberals, remember, he wrote, what was his famous book? Christianity and liberalism. When he was opposing the liberals of his day, his opposition was less rooted in the concerns of the 20th century, things like evolution. He was not fighting the battle in the way the fundamentalists were. His opposition was rooted more in his concern to preserve a form of historic Christianity called Calvinism that was being lost in the midst of his Presbyterian world. And this becomes clear when you read Christianity and liberalism. It doesn't read like a fundamentalist uh, creed or book. It reads like a defense of historic creedal Christianity, lacking fundamentalist concerns such as these were two big ones, and this ultimately, as we'll see, toward uh, the OPC and two, things such as dispensationalism or the evils of alcohol. And so, as I just said, I, I didn't realize it was the next thing in my notes, but the OPC is formed and then splits. Okay? Not only does the OPC say, we don't want to place at the table with these broad evangelical movements, but... Uh, this, this newly formed movement, you see everyone gathers together in opposition. Same thing happened in the Reformation. Well, we're all, we're all opposed to Roman Catholicism. We join together, but then we have to figure out positively what we're trying to build. And then you end up with different movements. This happened within the Orthodox Presbyterian uh, Church immediately. It is formed and then it splits, which reveals these differing concerns. You had a faction led by Machen who were concerned, as I've been arguing, to, ho to hold on to confessional Presbyterianism, which is by design culturally irrelevant. But then you had the fundamentalists led by Carl McIntyre, who then ultimately formed the Bible Presbyterians who were fundamentalists to the core. And Carl McIntyre was the one who formed the ACCC. <laughs> I'm not used to saying that, obviously. Uh, I did, I, it probably doesn't even exist. The NAE does, however. Well, who won? For once, it was the confessionalists. I almost can't believe it, because it just seems the good guys always lose in these polity battles. But actually, they won. Uh, the confessionalists won. That should be obvious, by the way, because we're not a fundamentalist denomination. But uh, let's call them the bad guys. They're not bad guys. Uh, but the bad guys, uh, the losers, formed their own denomination called the Bible Presbyterian Church, which is in existence to this day. But what it cost this newfound movement was a, a chance to gain popular appeal. You can imagine that momentum was on their side. And, uh, and they, they could have really gained a place uh, in, in American... Protestantism, uh, a large, significant place, and they self-consciously chose not to because they felt that they would give up too much in the process. And I think, as I said, citing the PCA today, 
Uh, very often that has proved to be the case. Uh, the, 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 the more influence you're looking for culturally, the more you give up in the process. That seems to be inevitably the case. These men, like prophets, seem to see that is the case. And the OPC has never been big. It's never been culturally relevant. Every time someone asks me, you're, you're a minister, uh, yes, an Orthodox Presbyterian, uh, what is that? Uh, I, I, we once had, uh, I kid you not, rushing, Russian uh, refugees come to our church and ask me for prayer because I was the priest. You're an Orthodox church. <laughs> I kid you not. No, no, no. We're not Orthodox like that. Uh, that I am not making that story up. Um, so uh, people have no idea who we are. Uh, and, you know, there are major, major downsides to that. But there, there are some real positives to that as well. This is how it's, it's always been. This was by design from the beginning. What we have sought to do, and this has not been without ebbing and flowing all along, but we have sought to preserve this confessional tradition. And that is a different, an entirely different goal. And one could even argue an opposite goal from that of the evangelicals, which is to evangelize and transform the culture. Which is why even now, I find myself at odds with the post-millennial confessional Presbyterians. Uh, and the OPC typically is. You don't find these guys in the OPC. You have to look for them elsewhere. But why, why preserve this tradition? Is it for the sake of tradition? I mean, surely we are aware of the arguments that Jesus makes against tradition. Uh, it isn't for the sake of tradition. It's because if you read Machen, or if you read Hughes Oliphant Old, there's a good reason for this. It's because, well, it's two things. One uh, most of the things that are modern, I almost said all, but I'll try to be balanced. Most things modern are, are not, have not proved beneficial to the church. But the second is because uh, Machen says the strongest Christianity is consistent Christianity. This is paraphrased. I, I'm pretty close, I think. And he says the most consistent Christianity is reformed Christianity. And so the reason we sought to preserve this tradition is because we, we rightly, we think, believe that the reformers were, were real heroes of the faith and that they were creating a tradition worth following. In the same way, those men looked to the church fathers as their heroes and sought to preserve what they stood for. And so really what we believe is that in preserving tradition, we are, we are maintaining the true spirit of Christianity. And you cannot understand the Orthodox Presbyterian Church apart from this consideration and this is what makes her very different from the broader evangelical movement, for whom cultural relevance is of supreme importance. One of the ironies of fundamentalism, I'm going to have to pick up the pace. This is truly our last class, and I have a lot of ground left to cover. One of the ironies, I said this earlier, of fundamentalism is its modernism. I'm going to say that again. One of the ironies of fundamentalism is its modernism. Now, how do you think we ended up there? I, I, I've got to stop the, the car. I like the, the back and forth, but I'm going to have to just <laughs> keep moving. The reason is because they reject tradition. They reject tradition. Uh, this is what, what Daryl says. Um, the prevailing difference between confessionalists and other Protestants is the degree to which each group has adapted Christianity to the social and religious environment of the United States. Theologically, the, main, the message of mainstream Protestantism, both in its evangelical and liberal forms, you notice, he lumps the evangelicals and the liberals together in this way, 
has been well adapted to the realities of the American experiment, while confessionalists have generally fought to retain old world practices. Again, I'll say it again. It's the preserving of tradition. That's the thought we're going to end with. I need to keep moving. The irony of American Presbyterian worship, I've just been speaking of this, the fact that confessionalists have more in common on the subject of worship with liberal mainline churches than it does with fundamentalists. I don't know if you've ever been in a PCUSA church, but I grew up in one. And one of the things that strikes me is uh, the strength of the liturgy. Now, the little, the, little bit of, the little talk they give and call it a sermon is really where the service fails. Uh, but the rest of it is, as Daryl points out, it, it looks more like a, a service out of Geneva than it does out of uh, the modern setting, which you would find in an evangelical church today. And so that's the irony of American Presbyterian worship is that the preservers of the liturgy of Geneva have actually been the mainline and the liberal. In fact, I'll put it provocatively, liturgically, the liberals are more conservative than their fundamentalist evangelical counterparts. That is what Daryl calls the irony of Presbyterian Worship and 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 he he gives yet another what I think is a, a good analysis and and ultimately you know we want to land where the liberals did <laughs> this is the only time you'll probably ever hear me utter those words but for in, entirely different reasons although in some ways uh, for the same reasons and it's our comfort with tradition that's the irony is that the fundamentalists are less comfortable with tradition and the liberals are. That's the main difference where we actually find ourselves siding with the, the, the main line. Well, previously we looked at this, uh, the fact that the mainline churches were preserving a tradition, but they, they held on to the form, but they lost the spirit. I don't know if anyone remembers that, but that was the point that I made. Now, that's deadly. Okay, That's why their, their churches are dead and lifeless. They held on to the form, they lost the spirit. But what happens when you try to preserve the spirit and you, you throw away the form? That's the problem with the... The, the evangelical church, they say, well, you guys held on the form you, because you lost the spirit, I mean, because you held on to the form. That's too strong. And so it was an overreaction. The confessionalists say, no, the form was right, but we have to be concerned to preserve the spirit. Well, that's how we looked at it last time. But Daryl offers a, a, a slightly different analysis, which, which we could add to that. And he contrasts two books. Now, I don't own the second book. I have no interest in owning it. And that is John Frame's book on worship. Uh, and John Frame is, by all accounts, a conservative. He's a PCA. Uh, I don't know if he's a minister, but he's a, he, he taught at RTS for a long time. Now, again, he's PCA, not OPC. But he wrote a book on worship that's very... By our standards, very loosey-goosey. It's open to things like drama and worship and stuff like that. But the, the, the great champion, the preserver, and we read this in the conservative confessional seminaries, the great champion of, conser- of, uh, of, of, of confessional worship was a PCUSA minister, Hughes Oliphant Old. And he wrote this when he was a PCUSA minister. Okay, Now, this is my relative. My son is named after him. I love this man. He's since gone to be with the Lord. I want to tell you a story about Hughes Oliphant Old, just to somewhat balance out the picture. 
uh, there were for a long time men like John uh, is Leith, I think, or Leaf, I can't remember. And he was often old. There were some old timers who were kind of holding on to the PCUSA for a while. I don't even know if they exist anymore, but for a while they were still there. Um, but they were, they were still arguing for the old ways. <laughs> uh, but, but ultimately, this is the story about Hughes Off and Old. He left the PCUSA. He began attending 10th Presbyterian Church, which is a PCA church, uh, and a very historically reformed church in its liturgy. Uh, and, and he told me the story of when he started attending that church. He had been in the PCUSA. He was an ordained minister in the PCUSA, and he said, Although once he was a professor, I think he became an elder in one of the churches. But he said to his wife, they went to one service and he said, now that was worship. Okay, so this is not someone who was satisfied with the PCUSA. Uh, just to give the, the clear picture. And he ultimately ended up becoming a professor at Erskine Seminary, which is ARP conservative. And he taught Terry Johnson. We've also looked at his book. Uh, so J- Terry Johnson's kind of the preserver of this and the modern voice of, of liturgical worship. Uh, in the PC in the Presbyterian Church, so just to balance out the discussion, it isn't as though John Frame is this arch conservative. He isn't. It isn't as though he's all and old as this arch liberal. Nevertheless, the point remains that Hughes all and old wrote this book while the PCUSA minister John Frame wrote his book while a professor. I don't even know what the book is called, but it was a, a, a famous book on worship that's being used. I'm sure it's in the book. Uh, I don't think it matters, though. Um, it may just be called worship, honestly. But um, while well, he was a professor at a PCA seminary. And what this reflects is a point that is certainly true. And that is the fact that there is a greater willingness on the part of the PCUSA, even to this very day, to accept a liturgical tradition that their Presbyterian conservative counterparts have been less willing to accept and in many cases self-consciously reject. When you read Old's book, which I have, I have not read Frame's book, nor do I intend to, you get the sense that he is enamored with the reformers. These men are the masters. He admires them. He loves them. Now, Again, this is where we have to balance out the picture. I don't think that is a fair description of most PCUSA ministers. Uh, But nevertheless, he loves the reformers. These men were not just masters of a theological tradition, but most importantly, they were masters of a liturgical tradition. And they put themselves to work in creating that very self-consciously. And this is where they're forgotten today. They not only created catechisms and wrote theology and polemical works, but they also created liturgies. This was the work of Calvin, this is the work of Bucer, and, and, on, and Luther, and on and on and on. They were the masters of worship, and we are the students. That's, that's old of you. Frame, on the other hand, is much more open to contextualizing worship, embracing modern cultural expressions to make it intelligible to the unbeliever, based upon 1 Corinthians 14. So you might have something like a dance drama in a worship service. I've seen that. I've been in a church where that happened. It struck me as odd, but in those days, who was I to criticize? The only thing that matters is, is it edifying? And so what you end up with is one man, a PCUSA minister, advocating for traditional worship, as it's called today, and the other, a PCA minister, advocating for, tradition, for contemporary worship, and both very self-consciously with clearly stated reasons. Let me highlight some differences in them. 
the contemporary forms of worship emphasize song and music, and thus it's come to be known as praise and worship. P&W, Daryl calls it praise and worship. Uh, the primary uh, element of the service is, is the song. It's the music. And, and perhaps um, y- you don't even have to participate. If you go to one of these services, look around and see how many people are actually singing. So you have the music for 30 minutes and then you have the teaching for 30 minutes. And that's the service. Uh, the older forms, while emphasizing singing as part of the picture, also emphasize the reading of scripture, the prayers, and there's a great tradition of that. There's a great variety of prayers, uh, which uh, Hughes, in another, Hughes often old in another book uh, goes through called Leading in Prayer, and he has a chapter on all the different forms of prayer that the reformers described as scriptural and then sought to implement in their worship services and their liturgies would reflect the different forms of prayer. And this is something that we are beginning to do. You have the prayer of invocation. You have the prayer of illumination before the sermon. You have the Lord's Supper prayer. You have prayers of confession and supplication. You have prayers of intercession. All of these showed up in the Reformed liturgies. Not just prayer. You see, that's what we used to have. But no, no, no. The prayer of, the prayer of, the prayer of. And they didn't just make this up. They studied scripture and they realized that this was the confession or, or, or the biblical emphasis. Uh, there was a biblical variety of prayer. They wanted that to be reflected in their liturgies. Uh, and this is part of the genius of Christian worship, I would argue, and, and Hughes Old would argue as well, is it's reflecting the grand prayers of Scripture. Uh, but also the sacraments, a very important place uh, given to the sacraments. And so the liturgy reflects the importance of all of these elements Whereas the contemporary forms, again, you have the songs, and then you have uh, you you have the the teaching, and that's it. Uh, again, I don't think I'm being unfair. I've I've been in that movement long enough to know that I think that's an accurate description of kind of the modern megachurch. Another inter- important difference is that Frame is interested in in um, attracting outsiders. This is a very important consideration for him. Again, based on First Corinthians fourteen. And worship is, is configured to achieve that goal. And so it has to be familiar. It has to be. Uh, the unbeliever needs to come in and feel comfortable in the worship service. I would argue that's, that is not correct. The unbeliever should feel quite uncomfortable. He should have a strong sense that he is out of place. And uh, become anxious and, and say, what am I missing? What must I do to be saved like them? Uh, but but that's, not, that's not the contemporary version. He needs to be at ease. And so worship is con- configured in a popular, after a popular fashion, and through modern forms of expression, the songs are made to re- resemble modern, popular music. And, and, and the feel of this is uh, very similar to a concert. When people get together for a concert, that's what people are used to doing. They're used to standing together in a crowd, swaying around while a a band is performing for them. That's what they're used to. Modern worship is configured after that. Because, again, that's what people are used to. They're used to getting together. for. They used to be used to getting together in a church service. But that's not what they're used to anymore. They're used to the concert hall. Let's make the church like that. And maybe the unbeliever won't come in and say the people are mad. As Paul says, but old, along with the reformers, is more interested in a different emphasis, and that is upon God himself. And so the worship is very self-consciously God-centered, and everything in the service reflects that. And these distinct emphases yield different forms and flavors of worship. 
Another obvious difference, I'm sorry, but as we're reaching the end, I can't bleed this into the next one, so I'm going to have to kind of blitz through this. Another uh, difference is that one believes, as I've been arguing, that only a certain kind of liturgy is capable of expressing a, a theological tradition. And again, this is where Old is really a theological conservative. He loved not just the liturgies, but the theology of the Reformers, whereas the modern liberals today only love their their worship, but not, not their theology. So it's too simple to say old, old was a liberal. He wasn't, but he was in a liberal tradition for a long time. This one side, this one book is saying this theology is, can only be expressed by this liturgy. The other side does not believe that. And that's become the prevail. This is how Terry Johnson opens his book. That's the prevailing idea in the PCA today, which doesn't even have a directory of worship. It is that this wonderful theological tradition that we have inherited is capable. This is its beauty. This is its strength. It is capable of a variety of liturgical expression. And uh, Terry Johnson says, I'm not so sure about that. And if you look at what happens to many of those churches, I think he's right. Because in giving up the liturgy, uh, they unwittingly and over time give up the theology as well. Again, I, I, I joke about, you know, I didn't like the worship, but the preaching was good. My response is, was it? <laughs> was it? Uh, people say that about churches sometimes, though. Uh, you know, it was a contemporary service, but the preaching was so good. And I'm like, I, you know, I, are you sure? Are you sure? Uh, did, did, did things really fit together uh, or were things out of place? Uh, I don't know. Maybe I'm not being charitable enough, but... Uh, I'm in agreement with, with old. It needs to fit together. The theology, the expression of the theology, the preaching, all of it. Otherwise, the whole thing will fall apart. But the problem is, as Daryl points out, this is the irony of Presbyterian worship, that both men are advocating for the opposite of one would expect. One is a liturgical conservative, and the other is a liturgical liberal. And they are in the opposite camps you would expect. How did we get here? Looking at the conservative side, one is uh, the influence of revivals. Again, I am a friend of revivals, uh, but I think these criticisms are valid, and I think it's worth looking at. There is nothing in the history of the church that is not uh, that is not open to criticism. Now, Daryl is not. Daryl thinks they were bad through and through. So just to be fair to the argument here, he is very much an old-sider. I'm more of a new-sider, but... Nevertheless, and I'm not going to get into that historical distinction if you're not familiar, but one side liked the revivals, others didn't. That's the simple version. But let's be fair. The influence of the revivals has not been a positive development for Presbyterian liturgy, for preserving that tradition. If you look at the form of service that was common in the field preaching of the revivalist preachers such as Whitfield, you will notice that it resembles very closely that of a contemporary worship service today. The one thing it lacked was liturgy. There was the singing of a hymn, there was a long sermon, and there was a prayer. That's basically all it was. Now, you could say they weren't trying to hold church services. They were field preachers, and that's a fair point. Nevertheless, that had a way of influencing the development of Protestantism in America, whether these men meant to do that or not. And so on the one hand, you have the field preaching services that were wildly popular. And then you had men like me who had no popular appeal standing in pulpits, wondering why he had such a small gathering, but there were a thousand people 
gathering around Whitfield. And then the 50 people you were left with were growing restless and uneasy. I'm not saying you are, but let's just imagine in the historical circumstances. You know, he's having wild success. And you're both basically preaching the same thing. But the church was becoming, and her, her tradition and her liturgies was becoming increasingly irrelevant. In the marketplace of American ideas, the old forms of worship were losing. And by today, they've lost. I, I think this is a valid a valid historical consideration. Hart is a, a first-rate theologian, I, excuse me, historian. And I, I, really, I, I find that part difficult to dispute. What happened as a result? He says, this is a quote, revivals became the standard for worship. Again, the revival service. And also the ethos of the revival. Increasingly, it became difficult for the reformed view of the Christian life, not just worship, by the way, Remember, the Reformed view of the, the, the Christian life uh, is reflected in worship, but it's bigger than that. It became difficult for that older form of, of, of living and the attitude uh, which, that, which went along with it to compete with the piety that was being promoted in the revivals. So it wasn't just the worship, it was the entire worldview that went along with it uh, of the Christian life. One was lackluster. We're in, we're, again, you got the local preacher who doesn't have the popular appeal of a Whitfield. All he can offer the people are simple sermons, like Calvin, by the way. Calvin preached very simple sermons. I wanted to get into that, but we don't have time. Calvin didn't have grand eloquence. He didn't have illustrations. Just a simple exposition of the scripture. That's all Calvin did. And so you have a man like Calvin standing up there offering the sacraments, singing uh, the age-old hymns, uh, offering the various forms of prayer. But how could he compete with a Whitfield or the other mighty preachers of his day who might have been setting up camp uh, in the field just outside? So one was lackluster, centered around the church and her ministry, Sabbath-keeping, family worship, honest uh, work ethic. And so in every sense, it was a rigorous. It wasn't easy. And you can understand why it wasn't popular. It was rigorous and it was mundane all at once. The other was more exciting and simple. In the place of the day in, day out rigors of Christian devotion, highlighted over here, premium was suddenly placed on extraordinary experience. The crisis of the soul, the crisis of conversion which the, 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 the revivalists were pressing upon their hearers. And increasingly, the church could not compete with this because the church was never designed to have this effect in the first place. The church was not designed to create the same crisis moment that the revivals were. The church is more ordinary and steady by design. It is more thorough by design. I don't need you to have an experience this morning I need you from your baptism to your death to be nurtured in the faith, slowly and steadily. Uh, And so there's less urgency, admittedly. There's less excitement. There's less of a premium on the immediacy of my experience right now. It's a more wholesale or a more, uh, not wholesale, but it's a more um, comprehensive, there's the word, uh, view of the Christian life. Less immediate, but more comprehensive. Whereas the revivals, unlike the liturgies of the local church, were tailor-made for producing in the very hour of the service 
an extraordinary experience. And even as I say, calling into question the religion of those who were nurtured in the piety and the nurture and the care of the church. And uh, John Nevin, uh, I think that's his name, uh, Daryl tells a story of him uh, being nurtured in the church, assuming he was a good Christian, and then going to a revival and then concluding he wasn't a Christian at all. <laughs> and this was a common experience. Um, he says it was, Daryl says it was a common experience for the sons of the church in those days. I've really got to wrap this up. So it's a difference, again, we looked at this earlier, between the ordinary and the extraordinary. Hart calls this the tension between Presbyterian liturgy and revivalistic piety. And what do you think happened? Well, of course, the worship itself began to reflect this newfound emphasis. One began to bleed into the other. And to reflect the spirit and the service of the revival. And hence, a low church tradition was formed in the American Protestant ethos. Enter the 20th century. Two factors explain the conservatives, quote, of today not holding much interest in the older forms of worship. Uh, in addition to this earlier consideration about revivals. One is evangelism, which could be argued was as well a result of, of the revivals. And so with this preoccupation, going back to the fundamentalists and then the evangelicals who followed their children, the preoccupation of, with evangelism that was reflected in worship. But the liberals, on the other hand, lacking this concern, admittedly, <laughs> lacking a zeal for converts, are much freer to embrace the older forms. Also views of the Bible, going back to the fundamentalist controversy. Now, again... Major was in agreement with them. Uh, but this worked itself out differently liturgically. And the irony of conservatives is that in, in constraining their arguments to the Bible and self-consciously rejecting the older traditions, they in reality, as Daryl says, only yield to license. Since no one ever found a liturgy in the Bible. And so apparently anything goes. Which I think is a fair criticism or, or, or analysis. In the modern evangelical movement, truly, anything goes in worship. After all, again, was there ever a liturgy found in the Bible? No, there wasn't. And so their constricted view of the Bible actually leads to a very open-ended view of worship. Again, we're describing the irony of American Presbyterianism. Whereas the seeming open-ended ideas about biblical authority among liberals actually, again, ironically, yielded a greater comfort with tradition. They don't have the same need to throw out the older forms. They're comfortable with them. It's bizarre to me. I grew up in the PCUSA. My sister, for a time, was a minister in the PCUSA. I mean, you can't say these things without laughing a little bit. They're all just so ridiculous. But they're, they are so comfortable uh, with these older forms of tradition. And, and you want to say, do you even understand them? And no, they don't. But uh, but they don't have the same constraints to the Bible. They have a much more open-ended view of things, yielding a greater comfort with tradition. The irony, this is the greatest irony of all, is that this actually, in the end, yields a more biblical form of worship, if only by accident. They end up being the sons of the reformers who were masters of the Bible. But uh, unlike old... Only by accident. 
Now, as I close, this is not to argue for the assumption of the liberals. Okay, I'm comfortable with what they've done. I want to do what they're doing. I want our services to look like Geneva, but not for the reasons that they are. Not because of an open-ended view of the Bible or because we have no interest in evangelism. But the solution, and this is the final thought, I feel that we basically began with this and so we'll end with this as well. The solution is what it has always been, and that is to understand worship and liturgy as the reformers did, and that is as a fitting vehicle for our theology. If we accept the theological conclusions of the reformers, we ought to accept their liturgies as well. That may not seem to make sense to you, but that is the logic of this entire class. And if we understood why worship for them looked like it did, then perhaps we would be more comfortable with it as modern conservatives or even evangelicals. Maybe you would describe yourself in that way. And then perhaps we won't, as confessional Presbyterians, have to reinvent the wheel with every new generation. And I'll end by reading a quote by Hughes Old, which Daryl quotes in the book. He says, a tradition which gets radically changed every generation is not really a tradition. For a tradition to be tradition, it must have a considerable amount of permanence and changelessness. Tradition can only become tradition when it is passed from one generation to another. And that is the heart of this book, Recovering Mother Kirk, and that is uh, something that I would contend with as well. We are traditionalists, and we do have traditional worship, and there's good reasons for that. Hopefully for 12 weeks... I've, I've uh, managed to convince you uh, to some degree. But we need to get next door. This has gone a tad long, but we had to finish. Uh, let's, let's close with prayer.